my coffee, I drink espresso like 99% of the time. So, yeah, uh, I'm not one of the cookies who drinks, uh, how do you call it, matcha latte or flat uh, whites, no. I am very excited today to be joined by Cubeflow's biggest fan, or as Lee. <laughs> that is that's what I'm calling live, you. That's my name. I'm never going to live that down now. Oh, so. uh, dude, I love it. And so maybe one person other than myself on the internet calls you that, but I don't care. Uh, I'm going to keep calling you it because I think you are, uh, you've probably been reached out by the Cubeflow community since that uh, conversation we had, huh? Yeah, we we definitely we we hang out with Cubeflow community quite a bit. So there we go. So for those who do not know, Ryan came on the podcast. He was an excellent guest. We talked a lot about doing Kubernetes and machine learning together, specifically Cubeflow and how it works. And because this conversation that we just had with Rafa centered a lot around machine learning and Kubernetes, I thought who. Should I have as the perfect co-host? Well, I'm gonna hit up Ryan and see if he's available. And the stars aligned, you were available. So we got to have this really cool conversation with Rafa. What are some of your takeaways, man? You know, I love talking to him, it's awesome. I think what I was blown away with was his his history, right? Just kind of mm-hmm. how he came to be, uh, to where he's doing it. it. To me, it seems like he was on the forefront of so many things that we just now take for granted, right? Where whether it was be like, just go into, uh, I, what is it called, IoT before there was IoT, right? What he <laughs> before said. there was and the just, cloud, yeah. Before there was the cloud, right? Like he was, he was doing, I mean, it was really cool just to see kind of that, whereas like someone like me was kind of like, stumbled into this field, I feel like to some degree, right? That took the scenic route. You know, he's been kind of at the, the forefront. Um, his insight was great too on just so many different aspects of just the machine learning life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. When it, as it applies to Kubernetes. So, and his answer was really funny when he I asked him the question about, you know, who's Kubernetes, who's it right for? It was like, I don't know if he listened, he probably didn't listen to our, my conversation, but it's like verbatim what I said. So <laughs> I was like, I felt really validated at that point. I'm like, yeah, someone else has my opinion, but yeah. Kindred spirits, so man. Yeah, yeah right. you guys, exactly. Yeah, I really enjoyed at the end of it when we were kind of talking about must-haves these days. When you're looking at a machine learning platform, there's the nice-to-haves and there's the must-haves. And he broke down what he feels are must-haves. I think the surprise there for me was the explainability piece. And then I really liked how he talked about this. He was he kind of gave it up and he said, look, we talk a lot about data lineage, but we don't talk about model lineage. And you can tell a lot about how a model performs if you can see everyone that has touched that model and everything that they've done with that. So, I mean, maybe that was just because he wanted to give a nice little plug to MLflow. Maybe he just really (laughs) is into that. Who knows? I, I get the feeling that it is the later. And... So that that was, for me, one of my favorite pieces. I think we should just get right into this. Everyone who is listening, if you have not seen yet, we're doing meetups all over the world. Ryan's in SLC, the Salt Lake City, and we're doing MLOps community meetups there. We're doing them in Washington. We're doing them in Berlin. We've got them in India. I mean, there's even one in Australia. So 
wherever you are in the world, there's probably some MLOps community in real life event happening near you. I highly encourage you to get out there, hang out with some people. It's so invigorating to A, see people again, and then B, learn from all of these other, learn from your peers. Like we're, we've got such cool talks that are going on. And if you're on YouTube, you might want to subscribe to our other channel that just puts out all of the in real life recordings. So we've got all of the talks that are happening at all of these in real life meetups. We started a whole new channel for that. Go jump on it, subscribe, do everything that you do with YouTube. And for now, we're going to just jump right into it with Rafa. Where do we even start with you, Rafa, man? You've been in the game for a long time. I don't even know where to get started. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. Why don't we start at the beginning? Like, give us a breakdown. What was your first job and how did you start touching data? First of all, I'm uh, really happy to be here. Quite excited. Uh, I follow my mom's community quite closely. So yeah, definitely honored to be here. Um, well, first of all, I think even before I started working, uh, when I was a child, I was a huge uh, video game geek. Uh, got an Atari when I was six, and uh, yeah, uh, that's that's how it started. So, had a, a, a bunch of consoles, and for a while, I wanted to. I had this idea that I wanted to work in game development, and uh, at some point, it just uh, morphed into computer science and. Yeah, so I did uh, software engineering for, for my study. So, yeah, that's um, that's basically uh, the industry I started. Right? So I started software engineer uh, really long ago when there was no Kubernetes and no Docker. <laughs> and uh, but I started right from the beginning in a really uh, one of the most data intensive industries back then, but also uh, it still is today, which is the stock market. So I used to work as a software engineer in the, in the Brazilian uh, stock exchange. I come from Brazil, by the way. Uh, so that was my first job. Uh, amazing experience. There are a lot of cool things. Um, working financial companies for, for a while. Um, moved a bit to a different industry. I worked in telematics uh, in an Israeli company. Uh, lived up for a while in Tel Aviv, by the way. Amazing as well. Fond memories of those times. Uh, so it was actually an uh, asset tracking slash car tracking company. So I like to joke and say it was IoT before there was IoT. So all these cars and trucks uh, uh, pushing all this data, uh, not to the cloud because there was no cloud back then. We're talking about 2010. Uh, but basically, we had a bunch of these uh, TCP. Um, sockets running in, in a data center and uh, this car is talking to this uh, oh, nice. to the sockets to publish this data, right? So we started, I think that was my first um, experience with data from a more analytics uh, point of view, right? Because uh, back then I remember we had use cases, for example, um, we needed in real time to detect if, uh, for example, a truck driver from FedEx was uh, leaving the area where he was supposed to be with geofencing, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, 
other uh, more analytical use cases. For example, I want to look at the fuel consumption for the last six months. Who is the driver who gets uh, late the most? Uh, who is the driver who is early the most? And this kind of thing. Um, and, and this was in 2010? Those, so to 2010, yeah. And you were doing you were doing real-time stuff in 2010 at this IoT with no cloud. And how did that even look back in those days? Uh, it didn't look pretty, <laughs> I got <laughs> to say. But um, for me, it was also a, a huge paradigm shift, right? So I, I, when I started as a software engineer, I, first of all, I worked mostly with batch uh, kind of uh, systems um, and mostly with proprietary stack. So Microsoft was huge on C-sharp and SQL Server back then. Um, and this was, uh, I think, my first experience with uh, open source. So we're running Linux uh, all the way. Um, we were running uh, C uh, to process these uh, streaming data in a really efficient manner. So it was all really new for me, right? So, so uh, at the same time, it's quite exciting. But from the infrastructure perspective, I think it was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest uh, challenges, right? So it was basically bare metal running a data center. And I think it, it was also um, was, was also a challenge to know first to scale and to know when to scale. Um, you didn't have the elasticity, right? So it's a bit of a more uh, static kind of a planning. And would you say that that is one of the biggest differences these days and like something that you're the most thankful for, that elasticity that you can have now just at the touch of a button, you can scale up or scale down? Absolutely. Um, I believe if, if I had to think about the top three uh, biggest selling points of the cloud, for me, this would be number one. Um, which is quite interesting as well, that that, that, that connects a bit to uh, to my personal experience with Kubernetes. Um, I, won't, I won't lie to you, the learning curve uh, is a bit steep. I think in the beginning, it was a bit overwhelming because there were so, so many things to learn. The terminology was also kind of a, kind of a challenge, right? I remember I used to think, oh, what are these bots and what are these uh, service accounts? And, that uh, stuff, but when I when I finally grasped that, um, the way I looked into it was okay. So now I can control. It's almost like I can control an entire data center with code, and I can simply say, okay, instead of uh, going there and placing a virtual machine in a in a in a rack, I can just spin up a, a pod and uh, or something that I found even more amazing. To just create a horizontal pod autoscaler and 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 just leave it uh, run, right? I was uh, flabbergasted when I when I when I learned about all these things. So it was kind of a, a watershed moment as well, because from from one side I was amazed, but also uh, um, not concerned. But also I was also I, I also felt challenged. Um, but also, I felt okay. So I'm never going to have to deal with uh, with bare metal again. So that's a good thing. 
so I, you know, I'm what you're saying is pretty awesome. It's reminding me of like, you know, all of the learning curve, right? The, the same thing I had to go through, right? Of Kubernetes. What would you say was the single hardest thing to grasp when you were starting out with that? Like, what was the hardest concept of the whole Kubernetes ecosystem that was just like, this is hard. I just, I mean, you might still struggle with it today. I don't know. There's definitely things for me, but. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, I remember when I was in college, the networking classes, they were not uh, my strongest, <laughs> my strongest uh, uh, skill, I gotta say. So I think uh, when, you transpose, when I transposed this to Kubernetes, it was almost like it was haunting me again. Um, so I, I would say probably, I don't know, if you ask this question, if you ask me this question one week from now, I don't know if I'm gonna say the same thing, but uh, for me, it was quite, uh, uh, I, guess, I can't remember the type of feelings I had when I was when I was having to deal with that again. You know, uh, it, it was almost like uh, I was going back in time and say, "Okay, this network uh, stuff again." But uh, yeah, I think um, at the same time there was a bright side, definitely, right? So I said, "Well, I'm gonna actually have to learn this," you know, not only because of Kubernetes, because also if you're if you're running stuff on the cloud, you need to know that. Uh, from the most basic security uh, kind of uh, requirements that you need to implement, uh, that's essential. So, yeah, I thought to myself, okay, let's let's kill two birds with one stone and let's learn this thing. Yeah, no, it's it's that's exactly what, what I'm saying today. Networking, hundred percent. Like that's yeah. the hardest part, right? Like, especially I'm like I was not a software engineer before I came into this, right? I'm like that traditional engineer building, you know, literal things, and then have to kind of slowly move my time over here and networking to this day still just kind of haunts me I feel like like it's just it's something that no matter how many times I've done it it's still that's that's the crux and there's a lot of that obviously going on in a, in a Kubernetes platform so I just that's kind of like that'd be the biggest thing for me it's always been it was nice to hear that was the same thing for you so that's uh, yeah the amount of times I, I've heard people talk about headaches with ingress as you know, if I had a dime for every time that I heard that, <laughs> I I would be a rich man. But yeah. so then let's like jump into doing machine learning on Kubernetes and how you got into that, Rafa, and like what you're looking at when you start to see, okay, Kubernetes has all of this potential. I'm all in on the cloud. I'm all in on Kubernetes. And now I'm going to not only do my analytics on there, I'm going to try and do more and more machine learning workloads. What are some things that came up and still to this day come up? Like what are some pains that you're having when you're doing that? Yeah, sure. I think, uh, I think it's an interesting question, right? The thing for me, the, the, it, it, it's a bit nuanced, right? Uh, I think, uh, Right now, the, the, the vision of the challenges, uh, the understanding of the challenges and implications that you have when you're running machine learning Kubernetes is quite different from when I started, right? I, I have this ethos of uh, trying things and, uh, and breaking stuff, you know? So it was almost like Kubernetes was, was untamed land, but at the same time, um, sometimes people, uh, and myself included, are just naive, okay? Uh, I'm gonna spin up these, these deployments and I'm gonna uh, package my model as a container. Everything is gonna work, hunky-dory, uh, right? And, and then you start to learn about things like uh, secret, secrets management, um, 
how do we scale these to enterprise level as well, right? Because one thing is you are working in a small team of five people uh, and you spin up a, a cluster on AKS or EKS, for instance. Most likely it's going to be fine, right? But when you're talking about uh, a machine learning center of excellence, uh, I was talking to, um, to Ryan before we started. Um, one of the places I worked, they had this interesting concept of uh, a center of excellence specialized in Kubernetes. Uh, one of the reasons because they were big on machine learning and Kubernetes. So in this case, uh, you had this team who were like the gatekeepers of Kubernetes, but they were also like internal consultancy kind of team. So they provided a blueprint, all the CI/CD pipelines, all the Helm charts so that you could uh, do your own thing. And it was 100% automated deployment, so zero manual intervention, which is also something that you, you don't think right in the beginning, right? And it's even healthy sometimes not to consider that because uh, sometimes you just want to run an MVP, right? And I think my biggest takeaway is uh, you might be tempted, tempted to uh, to start things as an MVP in Kubernetes and to keep things like that. And then you just learn that it's not enough when it breaks, right? And some things you're able to predict, uh, some of the things are, are, are just common sense, right? Uh, I can just give a quick example in terms of workload estimation. If you do a back, back up the envelope calculation, you can say, okay, I need to have at least uh, three uh, nodes to have high availability, each of them with uh, 16 gigs of memory and so on. But uh, yeah, things start to get more and more complex and uh, you start to, you need to scale at some point and then uh, yeah, the challenges uh, are different in that case. So I, I want to follow up with that a little bit. Um, yeah. There's a lot of pain points, right? And we can get, to the, I'd like to get to deep depth in those, but my first question would be, what is, I mean, in your opinion, why is Kubernetes a good platform for ML? Or is it? Or, right, do you need, like, what kind of extra support? Mm, I, I don't that. know, it's a lot of things, but like, you know, yeah. why is it a good platform for, for ML? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, I I'm, I'm quite I, I need to make a disclaimer first. I'm quite passionate about Kubernetes. If you tell me you're gonna you're gonna uh, be writing these YAML files like uh, we're discussing, right? You're gonna, you're gonna be doing that all day long. I'm gonna be the happiest guy on earth um, to do things end to end in Kubernetes. Uh, it, it's amazing. For, uh, um, it's it's definitely my cup of tea. Uh, but why do I think um, it's a good platform for machine learning? I think it gives you, uh, as I was saying, it, it connects a bit to my previous answer, right? It gives you a lot of power um, and also related to the elasticity that we were talking about, about, right? It gives you a lot of power, it gives you a lot of flexibility, and the isolation is also there, of course, right? Because in the end of the day, it's a container orchestration platform. I think the combination of these three make uh, makes it quite powerful uh, for two things, not only for productionization, but also for something that uh, we all need, which is reproducibility, right? Uh, one thing is to, uh, I am a data scientist in one team, I create my own Docker image uh, to package a model. Um, I've seen places that they were quite happy with running these 
in a Docker engine running in a virtual machine, you know. But then uh, you're pretty much limited to the kind of stack that you have running in the machine. Whereas if we transpose that to the Kubernetes world, you can simply say, okay, I want to allocate 16 gig uh, gigabytes because this other guy was using the same amount of memory for CPUs and so on. So I think this power and this flexibility allows you to uh, to, to reproduce most most kind of experiments uh, by controlling these, these type of vectors. So I think, I, I, in my perspective, it would be a combination of the three. That's good. I have one follow-up then. So to kind of continue with that then, uh, and this is something that I've continually trying to kind of form an opinion on myself, but it's obviously, I, you know, I agree with you, Kubernetes is a great platform for ML, but is it always the right answer? And what if what does the team composition or what does the, the organization look like where it's the right answer? I'd like to hear like your thoughts on on that one. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, I think we were in an area uh, where nothing is really uh, exact science, right? Despite the, despite the, the classical uh, conventions, right? Uh, and I don't think there's there is a silver bullet. I think with Kubernetes, is, uh, it's not different. I think I'm going to give two examples. Um, I've worked in companies with, the, with these two types of uh, landscapes. Right? So you have one company where um, teams are isolated. Uh, each of these teams are doing their own thing. And in your team particularly, no one knows about Kubernetes. No one knows, knows what it is. No one is able to support it. Um, and uh, I was crazy enough to spin up a Kubernetes cluster in, in this type of setting. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a huge experience. But uh, your mileage may vary, right? You need to be, either you need to be willing to, to support this, uh, that old saying, right? You build it, you own it. Or you need to get uh, the buy-in from people, right? Um, some kind of commitment in a way that you know that someone will support that stack at some point. And it's not it's not easy to find people who know it, right? So I think just to, to, to wrap up this first part, if you don't have enough maturity, and at the same time, if you don't require that level of scale, you might be pretty okay with running Docker in a virtual machine or a couple of virtual machines. And that's pretty much it, right? On the other hand, if you have um, a mature organization, if you need the scale, but at the same time, you know that you're going to be able to get the, the right amount of investment and the right amount of enablement, um, then I would say go for it. Uh, if, you, if you are okay with the idea of uh, supporting it, because let's be honest, it's also a complex beast to, uh, to support it, right? I think for deploying stuff, it's amazing. Now, when it comes to supporting it for mission critical applications, twenty four seven stuff, yeah, you need to be aware of what's uh, part of the game. If you are, if you are aware of uh, what's needed and you're fine with that, you're not uh, having any problems sleeping at night. Then I would say go for it. <laughs> I mean, how many times have we heard that story of just? the lone data scientist that now needs to figure out Kubernetes because they can't get DevOps resources or DevOps is too busy to give them the time of day and they want to 
show some business value with all of these Jupyter notebooks that they've got. And so they're trying to figure out a way to do that. And next thing you know, they learn Kubernetes and it's like six months later, seven months later, and they start getting into these networking issues or they start banging their head against the wall because it is a beast. And uh, as one past guest, Brandon said, he was like, yeah, Kubernetes is a beast, but I'm so happy for it to be this beast because yeah. it I allows you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, it is so crazy to just sink your teeth into it, but I need that kind of, uh, that horsepower, you know, I need the oven to bake that hot for me to be able to do what I want to do. So, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and I think it's amazing when that happens. I, when I hear these kind of stories, unfortunately, I don't hear a lot, but when I see those things happening, data, data scientists, uh, uh, rolling up the sleeves and learning Kubernetes, uh, uh, I think to myself, well, hats off to this guy, man. And uh, I think um, the, the framework itself has evolved a lot over the years. So now these kind of things are possible, right? But, but I think there's still a lot to, to overcome. I think uh, let's, let's be honest, right? I, I'm curious for you, for the experience you guys have as well for, from your, uh, from the conversations you have, but also from, from, from your experience at work. But in my experience, uh, not a lot of people are willing to invest the time to learn it. And even you even have some tools which promise to, to make this, uh, this transition uh, smoother. For example, the other day I was given a ZenML scheme and was quite, uh, quite amazed by it, to be honest. Uh, so I think one of the biggest purposes for what I understand is to, is to remove this friction, let's say, right, from, from the modeling and the experimentation part to to the exploitation part to kind of encapsulate these uh this overhead uh, all these things you need to know but uh, yeah you still have uh some other responsibility yeah i think the best story guys? of this that i've heard is and it still is hands down my favorite introduction in the mlops community slack this guy ale solono came in and he said I was a happy data scientist until my boss told me I need to deploy the machine learning model that I created. And now I'm like in here, I find myself in this MLOps community. And next thing you know, we actually interviewed him uh, probably like six months back. He's like, yeah, I'm not really even a data scientist anymore. I'm so into this whole engineering thing. I kind of like hung up my Jupyter notebooks and now I'm just getting into the raw code. And so it's cool yeah. to see that that is possible. I do agree with you that that's a little more few and far between. And I, I know a lot of data scientists who are happy just saying like, here's my Jupyter notebook, do whatever you want with it. I just want to know if my accuracy score is what I think it is when I was training it and you know, like everything else you take care of to, and yeah. so then that, that is probably the cultural side of MLOps that we need to talk about more, you know, and we need to have people understand. I really like how you and Nicholson talked about it when he came on the MLOps community meetup one time, the virtual meetup, and he mentioned how there is a difference now that he sees with basically because of the MLOps movement, people start to understand like a data scientist, a data engineer, an ML engineer, an SRE, they all kind of speak the same language and there's not clear borders of where one 
stops and the other starts. It's almost like this, if you were looking at a picture frame and in the first picture on the left, you have all of these colors that it's just like yellow, blue, black, white, and it's very clear where one color stops and the other color starts. Now, what his way of seeing it is like, now it's almost like a gradient where you're not really sure which one starts and which one stops where. And that is an incredible viewpoint. And I think that's like what we try to aspire for. And you're probably in a healthy organization if that's how you're doing things, right? Like if everyone can kind of take a little bit of weight off of the other person or their job function doesn't necessarily sit right in this one spot and then everything else is not my problem. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and I also think it also depends. Uh, it's interesting, right? Because it, it, we start to connect to a bit more, let's say, philosophical aspects, right? So the company culture, I think that plays a huge part as well. Uh, if people are stimulated to try new things, if people are stimulated to, to help each other, to step outside of their comfort zone, then that kind of... Uh, situation described it's naturally going to happen right but you also have places where usually people are not stimulated or they're not uh, they're not stimulated to get outside of their comfort zone or they're not stimulated to to help each other or to try new Mm -hmm. things sometimes they're even penalized for trying new things Uh, yeah so in this kind of uh this in this kind of uh, setting, it's natural that e- each person is going to protect their own turf, right? Uh, I do my data science, uh, you know. I don't want to. Uh, uh, I, I do my. Mo- I run my models. I create my models. Train my models. I don't want to be the one who's going to be called up at night, you know, if things stop working. So my work stops here. Here is your uh, Jupyter notebook. Now it's your job to bring the model from Jupiter back to to Earth, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to like echo like a lot of these things of my experience, right? Like one, you're right. I, I really, I really, maybe it's cause I'm like this person, but I really enjoy the idea of that breaking those barriers. Right. Cause that's where I think, like you said, the company, like a culture that has that where everybody's understands to some degree, right. It's going to be very, but they understand what is required to take their idea to, you know, to production, let's call it. Right. So I think that that is critical. And I, I, I got to say the, the data scientist that, you know, rolls up their sleeves and starts to get a little, get their hands dirty a bit in, in the software side, on the engineering side of things. Um, that's, I think that's, that's healthy, right? Especially if you're going to be uh, working with SREs, machine learning engineers, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's important that you, everyone tries to speak that same language. Like, yes, yeah, so that's just, and I, exactly. I've seen that's where the most success, success is um, as well. But uh, yeah. This is that's awesome. No, I mean it's exactly that, right? And I, and I can also imagine. I think it, I think it's definitely a win-win situation because, for example, let's say that I'm a machine learning engineer, and in the beginning we have this way of working where each person sits in their own in their own silo. The other scientists they train they just train models and they they bring uh, they bring to us and machine learning engineers and say, hey, here it is, you deploy it. So this is one thing. Another thing which is completely different is the same data scientist coming to you and saying, hey, can we do a code review uh, together? Uh, mm. Can you give me some pointers on how to make this better? Can you show me how, how you do your work? 
why I say this is a win-win situation? Because for the data scientists, it's a learning opportunity. And for me, as a machine learning engineer, to see that kind of interest, uh, that's the definition of teamwork, right? You're not just coming and say, hey, do this for me. It's not a production line kind of thing, you know? It's actual collaboration. So I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the chances of uh, effectiveness in this case are are much bigger. And, and I think it, this doesn't apply only for machine learning engineering and, and data science in general. I think it applies uh, almost for everything. So I think, think, yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with that, right? Like, um, that these these anyway that skill kind of applies for a lot. I I want to dig in a little bit now because I think we've, we've we've talked a little bit about Kubernetes right and talked about it, but we know you also work for Databricks. So yeah. I I had this question. This is my first question. I actually wrote down before this. This is I wanted to ask you. So when does it make sense? This is still kind of on the same theme, right? Well, when does it make sense to use a tool like Databricks over some open source software on Kubernetes? Like when where where is that? It kind of goes back to my original question, like, what is the type of team dynamic? So where does Databricks come in and help? And how has it changed, right? It's been like a year and a half since I've really dug in deep to Databricks uh, as, as a single platform, right? So I, I think I'm sure there's been a lot that's changed since then. But I'm, I'm curious to know from where does it make sense? Like, when does it make sense to use a tool like Databricks over just going sure. for open source in case? Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's also a good question. Uh, it's interesting to think about this because I've lived uh, both worlds, right? So uh, I... I was running Kubernetes clusters before to, to, to deploy machine learning. And now with Databricks, we have uh, uh, model serving uh, version 2.0, which is basically uh, serverless uh, real-time endpoints. And we deploy that. Uh, sorry, there's someone uh, ringing here. <laughs> uh, we're deploying that. Um, so it's basically the idea of platform as a service. Um, some people call it platform as a service or software as a service. So I think, in a way, the same kind of advantages apply, right? Sometimes, for example, what makes you go with deploying your own uh, Apache Kafka cluster instead of uh, running on Confluent, uh, for example? Uh, a bit of the answer uh, is quite similar, right? Uh, if you don't want to manage it, if you don't have people who are skilled in that technology, and you don't want to have that kind of overhead, I would say that it definitely makes sense. But I think in the case of Databricks, there is one uh, important addition, right? Uh, I think uh, for a long time, our vision uh, has been to be our go-to go platform for doing all things machine learning, right? So I think one of the northern stars is that uh, the less platforms you need to manage, the more you can focus on your data and on your uh, extracting business up, uh, business value out of the data, right? So I think uh, um, this choice in this case is pretty much in line with that, right? Um, I think uh, if you if you see the value in uh, shifting this uh, this effort from managing these platforms to um, to running this uh, as a service so that you can focus on other things. I, I would say that's the biggest, uh, the biggest difference in kids in this case, the biggest advantage. Okay, so here's like the point blank question now. I come to you and yeah. I say, all right, well, I have a Spark operator on my Kubernetes cluster. Why, uh -huh. why do I need Databricks? What, what does it give me? What else do I gain there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one as well. Um, so I think, uh, 
Well, again, part of the answer is the same. Um, you you won't have the overhead that you that you have. Uh, for, I, I don't know how much uh, overhead you have actually. It depends your mileage for rice. But I've seen uh, companies that have uh, fifty people to manage a sparkler to run on Kubernetes. Other companies uh, ten people, and other companies with one person. Um, but I think the fact is, uh, you eliminate that uh, that overhead. That is a fact, right? And uh, on top of that, I think uh, from a functionality functionality perspective, uh, you have uh, other bonuses. For example, photon acceleration, which is something that is part of the, the offering that we have on Netflix currently. Uh, it's not part of the open source version. Um, but I think. The third and the biggest one is uh, is still related to the idea of centralization, right? So you don't need to move uh, between different silos, different platforms, because everything is running inside the same box. So that that unlocks a lot of uh, a lot of benefits when all your data is in the same place, but also all your uh, most of your underlying infrastructure is in the same place. You have less things to worry, and uh, yeah, less. Uh, Less uh, overhead, so I would say that's the biggest, uh, biggest uh, advantage. My name's Adam Strucker, and I'm head of machine learning engineering at Origami Energy here in the UK. And I'm bothering you today to recommend you subscribe to the MLOps Community podcast to keep up to date with a lot of the brilliant goings on within the community and get a glimpse at what some of the greatest minds across the MLOps space are up to. It's funny that. Probably like six weeks ago, I was in New York and I met up with uh, Cheeto, who also has been on here in the podcast. And we were joking that Spark engineers in big companies, they can do absolutely nothing, but they are so vital to those companies that they're like hiding in plain sight. You know, you could sit back, get this huge paycheck and really be like the linchpin for that whole company because of the value that Spark has and and what you were talking about, like that overhead and potential, like basically business is running on top of this, like all of these use cases that are running on top of it. And if Spark fails, you are SOL. And so, uh, but I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit and jump into something that you were talking about when it comes to like the best way to structure and promote code across experimentation and exploitation environments. Because I, I feel like that's something that we'd see a lot of, especially like I think about the uh, Google paper or the Google like best practices of MLOps, right? Where they talk about here's the level sure. zero, here's level one, here's level two. And level, as soon as you get to level one, there's like that separation between the two environments. And so yeah. have you seen, or have you tried to rec recognize some patterns or some ways that work best when it comes to promoting the code between those two environments? Yeah. Yeah, that's a certainly inter interesting question. You were saying about this paper from Google. I think recently uh, Microsoft also published something, and instead of three, they talk about five levels yeah. of maturity. Yeah, uh, totally. I don't remember exactly what, what are they, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, people's uh, companies and 
people's uh, ways of seeing this are, are changing quite fast, right? Um, I think, uh, again, I think there's no silver bullet. It, it will pretty much depend on the kind of, uh, I always like to think about the kind of problem that you're trying to solve, right? Um, you have, um, you can deploy code across different environments, but uh, you also have some, some companies who just uh, train a model in experimentation and, and just uh, promote the model to production, right? And they are fine with that. So I think, uh, um, I think just to illustrate uh, the difficulty in saying what is, what is the best way. So uh, just to try to make this more concrete, um, if you are operating in a tightly uh, regulated environment, uh, really critical, you cannot afford for things to stop working. Let's say, for example, you're running fraud uh, detection model. If the model stops for 10 minutes, it means that you lose millions in revenue. Uh, that will dictate, in my perspective, the amount of, uh, of, uh, of complexity, let's say, of, or of features that you have when it comes to these pipelines to, uh, to promote these models from exploration to, to exploitation. Right? So things, for example, unit testing, integration testing, A-B testing, which is something not all uh, companies do, right? And then some companies, they, they also go an extra mile and do some uh, things which are even more sophisticated, like Thompson sampling, for example. They want to really make sure that uh, they're extracting the, the, the biggest uh, uh, performance as possible. And for that, they want to battle test all these model versions. So I think uh, your particular um, Needs and your scenario are gonna are gonna dictate that. Um, yeah, that, that's that's what I that's the way I like to approach things. Not only in terms of this problem, but also I think uh, machine learning problems in general. Right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about the these trade offs that are like the flexibility versus simplicity or the impact versus complexity versus ease of use, all of those trade-offs that you're juggling in your head when you're looking at a platform and putting together something that is end-to-end, -end, how do you rationalize each one of those questions? And let's take it because I know it totally is specific to each use case. So if we were going with that fraud use case, let's like take that as our example, because I think that yeah. is a fairly common use case that a lot of people are dealing with, and it is very mission critical. Yeah, for, for this case, for, for instance, um, if, I, if, I, if I were in charge of, uh, of putting some, uh, some system like that up, I would want to be as restrictive as possible, right? So only uh, pull requests uh, to merge code to the to create a new release um, uh, reviews from at least uh, two people uh, to merge these uh, this, these pull requests and so on. And I think uh, actually, if you think about it, uh, in this kind of uh, when you are when you reach that kind of uh, restrictiveness, or to keep it in a positive term, that level of maturity, it starts to look. A lot, to look a lot like a, a mature software development uh, process, right? You have pull reviews, you have code reviews, um, you have 4i principle. So um, in this case, uh, I want to be more as restricted as possible. And the reason for that is that the stakes are really high. I don't want to be the guy in charge 
uh, if uh, something stops working, right, uh, the impact can be huge. So in this case, this is kind of the approach that I, that I would try to adopt. But you, you also have other things that you need to have in mind, right? So, uh, yeah. You're not able to to be this to to reach this level of maturity if you don't have the the, the, the right resources, if you don't have uh, the right team and the right knowledge. So uh, it's also it's also not something that happens overnight. It's I think it's more of a changing mindset than uh, than something tactical for the short term. Well, I like that you're talking about how it resembles a mature software architecture or a mature software organization, where do you think it doesn't resemble that? Like what parts are different? I think, um, I think uh, the way I see it on a high level perspective, so with software, you only have one type of artifact, which is the code itself, right? Machine learning, um, you have uh, the code artifacts. So in this case, there is an overlap with software uh, development and software engineering. But you don't, you don't have only one artifact, you have three types of artifacts. You, have, you also have the models, um, and you also have the data, of course. So you need to manage and to have a process that is comprehensive enough to cover all of the three. And each of the three are different disciplines, if you think about it, right? For the models, you are worried if the model is gonna be performatic enough, if the metrics are good, if latency is low enough, uh, depending on the use case, right? For the data, you are concerned with data quality, with uh, PII, uh, how you manage PII data, for instance. So yeah, there are more nuances than when you when you look into software engineering. Right? Not saying that software engineering is easy or anything like that, it's just that there are more uh, disciplines involved. When you're talking about, you're absolutely, I agree with you 100%. We, we different, there's more artifacts to deal with when you're talking about ML. So in your opinion, what is, what has been the best way to deal with those artifacts? Like obviously with code, it's probably, you know, you've got, you're using your repo. When it comes to um, a model, right? What, where are you, what are you doing with that model? How do you treat that model? How does version control work with that model? These are questions that I'm constantly asking myself all the time. Like what's the right answer there? Yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge actually. I think uh, if you ask different, uh, 10 different teams, they're going to give you a different answer, right? Uh, but I, I, I think this is also uh, where having a centralized uh, platform, uh, plays uh, uh, has a, a huge impact, right? Because for example, if you are training your models and serving your models and tracking your experiments and, and runs in the same place, and your feature stories in the same place, then you could simply um, open up your model registry and then for each of your models, for, for instance, you could see not only the metadata associated with the model, but also what kind of features were used to, to train that model. And that is huge. Um, if you have, uh, on top of that, if you know what version of that data was used to train that model, let's say that one week from now, your data is not the same, uh, but you still want to take a look into that type of data that was used to train your model. Because things uh, nowadays change pretty fast. People leave companies, people join companies, to have that kind of traceability and that kind of a track record is uh, is a game changer. So 
I would say, uh, again, uh, I won't repeat myself in saying, yeah, there's also very well, but uh, for instance, if you want to to have the full uh, feature set when it comes to to the visibility of these artifacts, I would like, for example, to see, uh, to have information, to have the metadata about the data that I used to train the model, about the metrics. The metrics in hyperparameter, I think, uh, it, it, having these tracked, it's, it's almost like a commodity these days, right? I think it's the basics to have some kind of visibility. But also, you will want to know who trained this model, uh, who changed this model, which is even more important, right? And, and last but not least, also uh, to have some safeguards uh, to specify who can approve a model uh, promotion from staging to production, for instance, right? When was model X promoted from development to staging? And when was it promoted from staging to, to production, for instance? To have all these, uh, these treasure trove of data, uh, I wouldn't say today that it's a luxury. I, I, I would say more and more, this is becoming quite uh, essential not only to keep uh, stability of machine learning systems but also for uh, explainability for instance you need to know what data was used to train your model uh, to help uh, to provide explainability to provide fairness and so on yeah and actually one thing that's funny and ryan maybe you have some uh thoughts on this too is i know that i've talked to and when the so the company that I was working for in 2019 that was doing ML ops, we were hearing a lot of people talking about RBAC and how necessary RBAC was for what they needed to do. And I'm wondering, like, I feel like that is still top of mind, especially when you get to larger organizations. Have you all, like, do you all think about that as something that is a, a must have or is it is it like a nice to have? How do you see that? And so I, uh, Ryan or Rafa, jump in. Uh, it's going to be a free-for-all here. <laughs> Just dogpile hey, this one. Go, go on, for it, Rafa. All right, all right. I'll, I'll start. All right. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a. It's a must-have, right? I think that you know, RBAC, you know, rule-based access control, is extremely important, right? Like you've got to ensure that. Um, just like based on like what is your role in the cluster what is it that you do what is your role in the team it all it all matters right and how that's handled today and probably it's it's definitely evolved right there's definitely more tools with the cloud vendors and such that provide you know ways to kind of connect that up to your cluster um, and make it easier to use the im and whatnot but uh yeah it's absolutely like a, a necessity i would say i don't think it's something you can get away from obviously it comes with its own headaches and that's the so if networking is the is the hardest thing for me <laughs> at Kubernetes, that is the next part is the security side. I, I just feel like a complete noob at all the time. It's just like, 100%. oh yeah, I see the docs. Yeah. Right. So go ahead, Raf. What do you what do you think? One hundred percent. And uh I completely agree. I think um uh one hundred percent our back uh is also one of the things that's becoming now uh, it's shifting from a luxury to uh, for an extra feature to something that is, that, that is essential, right? Because the impacts can be, uh, uh, there are multiple impacts if you don't have. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that you cannot uh, run ML without it. You can, but uh, you need to be aware of the consequences, right? And 
I think I would add one uh, other uh, aspect because I think a lot of times we, uh, in, the, in the data community, we talk about uh, data lineage, but we don't talk a lot about model lineage, at least uh, not in the circles that I'm part of, uh, which is equally important, right? For example, uh, if you can watch uh, the life cycle of a model, almost like it was a child, when it's born, it doesn't know how to read. Uh, it starts walking, it starts uh, talking really simple, in really simple terms, and then it becomes this uh, really smart adult, you know. If you know uh, what kind of school uh, this person or this model in this case, what kind of, what kind of uh, courses or classes they, they've been to, that can be quite, uh, quite useful, right? Who, uh, uh, who were the people who taught, uh, who taught this model, uh, all the tips and tricks, you know, all the right stuff, but also all the wrong stuff. <laughs> you know, if you know, uh, if you're able to pinpoint all of these, that can be quite, uh, quite powerful. And I'm, and again, I'm, I'm also really sure that, uh, pretty soon this will be mandatory. This will not be an option. So for model lineage, is this like a, you know, an obligatory plug for like ML flow or something at this point or what, 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 <laughs> sorry, side comment there, but, uh, what, what are your best, what are your favorite tools for model lineage? I'll just, I'll add that. <laughs> he oh, gave sorry. you a softball. I gave you a softball. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, let me think about it. <laughs> no, I think, uh, ML flow, um, uh, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I completely honestly think intense maturity is uh, one of the most mature tools out there. But um, uh, I think uh, the moment that we are in this industry is so uh, is so unique because you have so many people doing really nice things in this in this arena. And I'm not even talking only about model lineage or experiment tracking and so on. Uh, there you have weights and biases, uh, which is an awesome tool. Uh, Comments uh, which I never use, but they seem to be doing some good my stuff. Um, um, so it's quite uh, it's quite exciting. Uh, all of these tools they have their uh, niche uh, applications, right? I think where and also definitely excels is uh, one in the maturity, and two is it is quite comprehensive as well. So you can basically uh, track and register almost all types of models uh, out of the box. And then you're talking about something like, okay, you write one line of code, enable auto-logging, and, and bam, that's it. You're, you're logging everything you need. So this is quite powerful. Yeah, that's killer. Yeah, shout out to Corey and Ben who are on that team working hard on the MLflow, uh, the whole project there. Now, Rafa, man, this has been awesome. I thank you so much for coming on here. We're going to have to wrap now. This is top notch. Everyone that wants to learn more about Rafa, I highly encourage you to check out his website where and blog, I guess you could call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's MLOps How To. Rafa writes a lot of thought pieces and a lot of tutorials and a lot of just great stuff in that blog. So check it out. We'll leave a link to it in the description. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you know, it would be awesome. Tell your friend, share this with one person on the internet and we will 
happily thank you for doing that. So that's it. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Thanks, cheers.